better job. So thinking about thinking helps us do a better job and remove some of these biases from our practice of emergency medicine. Someone has estimated that we make or have a choice, yes or no, of 5,000 decisions every shift. Emergency practitioners want to do the right thing and will do the right thing if they just know about it. Actually, it's counterintuitive. I would have thought the first thing you do is pull that thing out immediately. Yes, that's why people subscribe to this wonderful service. If I can trade a small fasciotomy scar for 12 million bucks, they got it. Yeah, but if the fasciotomy scar involved the cutting off of your penis, you may not. That's just wrong. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, Mel Herbert coming to you with the December issue of Risk Management Monthly. Guys, you're on the phone. Ho, 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 Rick. Listen, we're doing this issue a little differently than we've done any issue in the past. Normally, Greg flies out to Los Angeles or we meet someplace and we do this together, everybody together, face-to-face. This month, Greg was not able to do that. So this issue is being brought to you in two parts. First of all, we recorded some of it at the ASAP meeting back in October. And the part that we are going to bring you from that meeting was our interview with Dan Sullivan. Dan is, many of you know, MDJD. He was also the presenter of the Mills Lecture, which is a substantial honor to be chosen to provide that lecture. He talked to us about communication and how you can get into trouble with it in the setting of risk management, among other kinds of things. And it was a really terrific talk. I did attend it. I liked it very much for whatever that's worth. Mikey likes it. So we're going to give you that interview with Dan coming up. And after that, we're going to do the usual kinds of things that we do. We've got the letters. We've got the papers. We've got the cases that we'll pick up after the interview with Dan. So let's take the interview with Dan first. Let's go now. I think we ought to point out to all the listeners that it's not very often we get this much talent on a tape. We've got the 2009 Mills lecturer from the Scientific Assembly, Dan Sullivan. Dan has been a major force in risk management in this college for the last 20 years, and it's a great pleasure to have you here, Dan. Yeah, Dan, we've been trying to get you for a couple of years now, and I'm really appreciative that you've taken the time to talk with us. Dan's at MDJD. But we'll forgive him that. (laughs) Okay. And the talk that you gave... Small on the JD, big on the MD. Okay. And the talk that you just gave, the title was Autopsy, help me out here. How Physicians Think the Cognitive Autopsy. Okay. And Greg and I were both there, and you made it clear how we can so easily get led down the garden path by little miscommunications that become larger and larger and larger. And you presented it through a series of cases where it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, geez, you know. But these were real cases, and real bad things happened. Right. It was the danger of those cases for people to say, yeah, the doc was just an idiot. You know, it's just a stupid decision. But that wasn't the case. They got led down the garden path by things that they weren't completely in control of. You know, it's interesting. You also showed a video of about a 19-year-old who had died of an aortic dissection after multiple visits to doctors over, like it sounded like, about a two-week period. Right. And one of the things I was taken with in that video is, the family had this history and they had multiple people in, that have died or had surgery for aortic dissections. And as soon as the family starts asking for a CAT scan, I think oftentimes we have almost a reflex resistance to whatever they're asking for. It's almost like I know best kind of thing. And yet it was so obvious that all of these people had it. Why would you say no? But I guess in the heat of it, and because I think we tend to 
sometimes resist those viewed as demands. There wasn't a demand. It was just a request kind of thing. Right, right. You get into trouble. It's interesting as I walked out of the room, it's exactly what two people made that separate comment. You know, two independent people made the same comment and said, you know, when somebody asked for a test, our first response is just, no, no, or, you know, we're not doing that test. It's like, my baby had a fever at home. Oh, really? I'm not going to believe that. If there isn't a fever now, then I don't think there was one at home. It's really the need to believe what they're telling you. The problem is, it's a part of the us-against-them attitude. And as soon as you fall into that attitude, then you become the gatekeeper of services. And we get into the idea that, well, we're the doctor here. Well, we did get a letter from one of our listeners who said, we need to back off this we-they kind of attitude because some patients do get hurt and do need to have compensation for their suffering and injuries and it's not like everybody is the enemy. I think the thing also stretches over to medication. As soon as a person asks for Demerol, the likelihood of them getting Demerol just went down about 70%. Right. But you have to ask yourself when you know that that situation exists and you know that people respond in that way and the point of that lecture was why? What is it back there? What is it in our subconscious that makes us react that way? Because it's a uniform reaction. It happens all the time. Why is that? How can we make that go away? How can we de-bias? First of all, understand it and then work on it and get rid of it. But it can be really, really nasty. I know of a case. In fact, I sat with a Continental pilot flying to Hawaii. I got bumped up to first class. Naturally, he's in first class. And this guy was using an electric hedge clipper over there. He lived in Hawaii and it cut off the tip of his finger. Now, a lot of times you ask for pain medications because you get a headache or back pain, an unquantifiable disorder kind of thing. Well, this guy had the tip of his finger chopped off and he had had multiple medical experiences in the past. So he made the mistake of asking the doctor for some morphine. And the doctor, as soon as he asked, with this obvious injury there, they got into this thing, and ultimately he wound up leaving the emergency department because the guy wouldn't give him anything. It's like the E.F. Hutton comment. As soon as they say certain things, everything stops and people start looking. He must be a seeker of something. Well, the thrust of your talk, can you give us like three minutes or something like that? <laughs> All right, let's fix that up on the uh, What time there. is your lecture, Rick? Uh, okay. yeah, we can, stop. Can, can you distill that down for us? Sure, and I think the best way to do that is to paraphrase some of the comments I made at the beginning. And I thought 20 years ago when I started doing this, and I know, Greg, you've done a ton of this, looking at thousands of cases, profiling those cases, all those chest pain cases, they all look the same. And all those failure to diagnose subarachnoid, they all look the same. Well, there's something to that. If they all look the same, you know, there's something to that. And then in the early 2000s, we published a study on 170,000 patients to actually measure clinical behavior. And we looked at 2,000 individual data points and looking at it from 20,000 feet, all these emergency departments, they look the same. And there's something to that. What that is, it's about how physicians think. So a couple of years ago, a friend had referred me to some articles on how physicians think. And the first one I read was by Pat Crosscarry, who has written a book on patient safety, and he's an emergency physician out of Canada. It's fantastic. I looked at some of his resources, where his information came from. It goes back to the 1970s to a fellow named Daniel Kahneman, who got a Nobel Prize for his work on cognitive processes and how people react in situations of risk and uncertainty. So having read those, the light bulb goes on for me that, yeah, these cases all look the same, and yeah, this data all looks the same. And so I thought, 
you know, I think this may be the common thread. This may be the tie that binds this all together. In the world of risk and safety, medical error reduction, and the causes of medical malpractice and adverse outcomes, it may have a whole lot to do with the way physicians think. And when you drill down into the way physicians think, you find that much of it can't be based on evidence-based because there isn't that much and can't be based on statistical probabilities because there just isn't that much. A lot of it is based on intuition and sixth sense and common sense and experience. And when you're in that realm and you're sort of in that subconscious and you're making decisions back there, that there are certain biases that creep in and that they can negatively affect your decision-making, like the one that you just mentioned. You said you need a CAT scan? You don't need a CAT scan. Where the heck did that come from? You might not even be in control of that. Or the one that Daniel Kahneman got his Nobel Prize for was one called anchoring. And the example that I gave was, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a duck. Pain in the left upper quadrant goes to the right lower quadrant, and that thing hurts when you push on spendicitis. Well, you prematurely close that thought process, you anchor on that diagnosis, you might not think, well, the patient's over 50 and that pain is going to the back too, so I should be thinking about something else. And the thought is that we may not have control over what's happening back there in the subconscious or the backstage or whatever it is that's affecting us, but that we can gain control over it. If we understand this thinking about thinking and we can address it, learn about it, and bring it into peer review and bring it into morbidity and mortality, we can learn from it and we can take some of these negative biases out or what Daniel Kahneman called the failed heuristics. We can do a better job. So thinking about thinking helps us do a better job and remove some of these biases from our practice of emergency medicine. I've taught for years, Dan, and I'd like your opinions on it, that I have a talk on hot buttons, things which a patient says or we see on the chart that immediately stops intelligent thought. And as soon as you see any of those, what you have to do is say to yourself, and I'll say to myself, Greg, (laughs) yes, it's a back pain patient. Okay, are a lot of those difficult people? Yes. Is there a small kernel there that have terribly bad disease? Yes. So you can't let things like the fact they've seen multiple other doctors, you know, their free skin to tattoo ratio, their insistence on medication stop you from doing the good history and the good examination and making an independent decision. In fact, as I saw your presentation, which was excellent, the small tape that was done with the family, it reviewed one of those rules of mine that I've had for years. Third time visit to a healthcare professional means you got to call somebody or do something because the bottom line is most people aren't trying to game the system. If they've been into it for three times, just do something. And I don't care what you do, but somebody has to rethink the case. And this was one that, as we dissect it from the outside and the history that the family gave, this is an unfortunate outcome because clearly he had three visits to perfectly good physicians and it should have kicked off a bell in somebody. Well, one of the things I liked about the case was the fact that it wasn't just one person getting it wrong. The doctor was led down the garden path a bit because the nurse assumed that neck pain must be from an injury. So instead of the patient didn't say anything about it, I have neck pain from an injury. They said my neck hurts and I have some pain in my arm. So there was an assumption made which was wrong. It puts down on the triage note neck injury, not neck pain. 
there's one mistake, which now the doctor is going to be prejudiced and say, well, that's, I've got a neck pain patient. So it's probably all kinds of opportunities to miscommunicate, all based on a lot of it on bias and prejudice. Absolutely. Your hot-button discussion just now, it's the same lecture I just gave. Different terms, similar issues. Back pain, you anchor on back pain and you just call it musculoskeletal strain and you just miss something that's happening with increasing frequency in the world that people are missing and that is increasing incidence of spontaneous epidural abscess. People are seeing more and more of that. You just write that off to musculoskeletal pain and you just made the biggest mistake of your life. I completely agree with you. Back pain just sort of stops thinking. Absolutely. Anchor stops thinking. And the other examples you gave are exactly the kind of things we were talking about today. Being in the insurance market and business, what am I going to do to change? See, it's nice that we've identified that these are the thought processes of physicians. What are we going to do, those of us who are actively involved in managing risk, what are we going to do to change the thinking or what can be done to give us a different result when these kind of cases come in? Number one, what was today? Today was whetting the appetite of a big group of people who may never have thought about this stuff before. They've heard your lecture, they've thought about it. They've heard me talk, maybe they've thought about it in different terms. But today they heard about something, they heard about cognitive biases and negative heuristics, and they thought, and there's sort of this new line of thinking that we need to be working on and developing. So the first thing is developing an awareness of these issues. But that's not enough because that educational curve is just so bad, they'll forget about it in five or six months. My strong feeling is that we need to build this into the systems that we work with every day, every minute of every day. You have a department meeting and you've got a peer review and you've got a good case, get that in there and talk about these issues. Call them hot buttons, call them cognitive autopsy, call it negative bias or heuristics, call it whatever, but do a cognitive autopsy and think about that process. Or more real-time, there are templates out there in electronic medical record systems. You give an impression, it throws you a differential diagnosis. So you might be anchored on something, but the fact that you're able to look at a differential diagnosis is a great debiaser. If you're anchored, that thing might pick that anchor up and let you think, ah, I should be thinking about some of these other things. So it's taking these lessons that we talk about all the time and we have for many years now, and it's building them into whether it's the organization of the emergency department, and our meeting structure and peer review and morbidity and mortality rounds and grand rounds, increasing awareness, and then building into the tools that we use minute to minute in our emergency department. The most wonderful opportunity we'll ever have is if we move into the world of electronic health records and electronic medical records, we've got to build clinical decision support into them. We've got to take the hot buttons you're talking about, the cognitive biases that we talked about today, and we've got to work on those records at the moment that the doc is about to make that mistake. There should be something there to help them through that process. Well, Dan, you mentioned about point-of-care alerting. Your company provides a service that has been built into some of these electronic medical records. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Our company, the Sullivan Group, does a couple of things. Our mission is to build system solutions into the emergency departments that improve patient safety and reduce risk. And part of that is education, and part of that is measuring behavior. You're going to measure something, you're not going to change something. But the most exciting part of it is building these lessons into the world of charting. You can certainly do it on paper, but in its most tremendous manifestation, it's building these elements into an electronic medical record or an electronic health record. And one of my favorite examples is how many emergency physicians are asking the question of a newborn in an emergency department, hey, mom, was there any exposure to herpes in the maternal birth canal? 
Who remembers that? So if an admissions clerk gets a five days old, so five is in the record, and then the nurse gets temperature of 100.8, and then the doctor is reminded to ask about exposure, someday program's going to take five and the temperature, and it's going to take the positive response, and it's going to say, give acyclovir now or this baby's going to die. And here's the dose of acyclovir. It will remind practitioners who may never have thought of it in the first place. And another tremendous example is this sort of flying in the background, pulse temperature disparity. You look at enough cases and you know if the temperature is normal and the pulse is going up, what's wrong with the patient? they got sepsis or they got a pulmonary embolism and it's going to be missed. They're going to discharge that patient with a pulse temperature abnormality. Pulse temperature abnormality, that's interesting. Look in the literature. Yeah, you'll find that it's been studied. And if there's a pulse temperature disparity, then there's something seriously going on with that patient's physiology. And so one of the things that we like to build in, if the program can tolerate it, is given age, given what that temperature is going to be, knowing what the pulse should be based upon the patient's temperature, if you've got a 25% difference or a 30% difference or a 35% difference based upon user-defined criteria, tell them. Let them know there's a temperature and pulse disparity, and this may mean something. Don't pop it up. Don't push it in their face. Just make it available so they can just go on charting. Pop something up in their face and they want to nuke the program because it bothers them so much. They don't want alerts in their face. But a little bit of help goes a long way. If there's that pulse temperature disparity, and I don't know about it, I'd kind of like to be reminded that it exists. So before that patient walks out the door, I've got a little help to do a great job. Are you telling us what it should have is at the time of discharge, we push about to be discharged button and it would flash on the screen, have you dealt with the pulse temperature cognitive dissidence there, and at least has to check yes or no. Well, that's exactly the point, and it is at the end, because at the beginning they're anxious, they're in pain, there's a pulse temperature disparity probably with everybody who walks in the emergency department. But by the end of that visit, presumably the pain's gone, and their fear's gone, their apprehension is gone. It's at that moment when they push that button discharge that you want to make a soft suggestion to them. Be aware that there's a temperature pulse disparity. Do you want to move on? We're not going to put in the chart, we just told this doctor there was this pulse temperature disparity, and the doctor checked, no, I don't want to do anything about it. Emergency practitioners want to do the right thing and will do the right thing if they just know about it. But those vital signs, they trend down. And even if they're in the normal range, that mean arterial pressure might be trending down. People don't know about it. Something flying in the background needs to help us say, You know what, Dan, there's a mean arterial pressure that's dropped 30% over the last four hours. Did you know that? Oh, my gosh. No, I didn't know that. So this person's got sepsis. We often don't think about how complex emergency medicine is. If all you see all day long is an orthopod, our knees, that's what you do. The actual number of different things, decisions you make, is very small. When you're an emergency doctor who may see 30 or 40 or 50 chief complaints, And now you take how many possible decisions there are on those algorithms. Someone has estimated that we make or have a choice, yes or no, of 5,000 decisions every shift. After all, you're given a list of tests, of x-rays, of various things you could or could not do. That really is an overwhelming task for any brain to do by itself. I know. Who came up with this idea, Rick? Was it you? This is a hard specialty. You know, I completely agree. If all I'm doing backs, don't give me these programs. If all I'm doing is hips, don't give me these programs. But if I have to deal with that emergency department I presented at the Mills lecture, man, help me out a little bit. Well, this does tend to be the worst first 
we have to kind of have that mentality. And we were speaking yesterday about back pain. Really, only back pain you need to know about is red flag back pain. And exclude all the red flags because there's pretty much nothing else that you can do for the rest except some pseudo-symptomatic treatment. But if you know about bacterial epidural abscesses and you know about corticoina and some of the characteristics of those things, and if you consider those, because we are in the worst first business, and it often results in the family physicians being critical of us because they tend to think, we oh, you order too many tests. We probably do order too many tests, but we see the subarachnoids and they don't. So the distribution of our patients is self-selected to a certain degree when they come into an emergency department. And you have to take that seriously rather than say, well, probably just gastritis. Our gastritises tend to be more coronary symptoms and their chest pains in the family office tends to be more GERD. Right, so at the moment that patient comes in with a back pain, it's that time, it's that moment when you have the opportunity to think, is there a mechanism? Oh, there's no mechanism? Well, gee, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's blood or in the perispinal space. Maybe it's an abscess in the perispinal space. So my thought is, rather than let them get anchored on that hot button, it's back pain, done, gone, you're out of here. At that moment, during the patient encounter, help them with the question, what's the mechanism? Have you thought about that? And if there is no mechanism, then think about a couple of things that this might be. Just bring it to mind. Although patients often feel compelled to connect a mechanism to their problem. It must have been my working in the yard yesterday. They want to create a mechanism. You kind of assume that their mechanism is right, and there you go down the path again. Their brain wants to build a story that it can accept. This is post-hoke thinking. And the full phrase talks about it happened after this, so it must be because of this. And that's just not correct thinking in a lot of cases. But we all get sucked in. What do you think of the way we are now set up? Let's take a very simple example. Blood pressure elevated at the time they come into the apartment. First of all, we don't even know why we take the blood pressure in most cases. A 19-year-old boy with a cut finger, the only reason we must be taking that blood pressure is to pick up a disease which has a long-term effect. It's called health screening, I guess, because it's not an indicated test in the setting of this problem. Right. But once you've asked the question and it's on the chart, you're obligated to do something with it, even if it's only telling him to have it checked at their doctor's office in a week or two and see what it is. Because there are two or three papers in the database now which talk about the fact that half the people who come into the emergency department with elevated blood pressure, it's not just because of their pain. Half of them actually had early hypertension. I totally agree. So I agree with you, Rick. You don't need the blood pressure on that person. But having gotten one yes. and knowing that at discharge, it's very likely to be ignored because so what? Mm-hmm. You've got a systolic of 137. So what? Well, so what is five years later, his kidneys don't work and somebody's coming after you. So what do you do with that? Knowing that that's true, and then 98% of the time they're out the door without anybody saying, you know what, go to Walgreens, follow up your private doc. Connect the dots. Connect that directly to a discharge instruction that says, hey, you know what, your blood pressure is a little bit elevated. It's not an issue for today, but make sure you follow up with your private doc. Problem gone. Problem gone without us even having to think about it. And that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do trying to connect those dots to take that problem that we've created for ourselves. Yes, we did create that problem. We should have never <laughs> taken make that it blood go pressure. Away. Now you did it, Ollie, so you got to fix it. Yep, that's exactly. right. That's right.
Any other lessons that we should take home from the talk today? I mean, it was a brilliant talk, well delivered. If you had to say this, there's the three things I want you to have walked out with today on that talk. Give us the three. Well, I think we need to recognize, one, that emergency department is environmentally and cognitively just a minefield, and that the decision-making density is just overwhelming based upon many factors, and that, that understanding that our ability to work with evidence-based and best practice and you name it, that in certain circumstances there's going to be a shift and we're working out of sort of the backstage where we may be subject to some of these hot buttons or these cognitive biases. Just recognize that that's the case. And then secondly, that there are ways, there's resources out there, and that there are ways that emergency practitioners can build this part of the analysis, this part of keeping patients safe and reducing medical errors into their day-to-day flow. They can put it into their medical records. They can put it into the systems and operations of their emergency department. And I guess third, that we're just at the beginning of this road. I feel like these are good and smart things that we're saying, but I still feel like we're mired in the muck. I think a lot of people today in that meeting, this may be the first time that they've ever heard some of these terms or actually thought about some of these issues and how they are affected and how they might not be in control of some of the decisions that they're making in the emergency department. And so we've got a long way to go, but I think through the efforts of what you've been doing for years, what you've been working on, Rick, for years, what, what I'm trying to do, and hopefully we've got a whole lot more people on board today in the presentation that we gave, we can do with this kind of an effort, some thinking about thinking. I think that we can improve the quality of patient care. We can debias and we can make our patients safer, and we can reduce medical errors. I want to present for just one second before we finish with you, Dan, a concept and see what you think, that the current payment mechanism may be our enemy here because we're so caught up in making sure we've recorded something on all these various systems that we do a superficial job on a lot of things and don't concentrate on the things we really need to look at. After all, why would a woman who's vaginally bleeding need to have somebody look at her eardrums? Or the uh, ankle exam. Or the ankle exam. The point is we need to know the key positives and negatives. On a back exam, we could list these out here in a few seconds. Are they having problems with urine? Yes or no. Are they febrile? Yes or no. Do they use intravenous drugs? Yes or no. I mean, there are things here which are big issues, not small issues. And the payment mechanism, I think, is requiring all these various boxes to be checked off, all systems reviewed and found to be negative. Crap, 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 crap. Big lie. Missing the forest for the trees. I think one of the most interesting findings in the analysis we did of the 170,000 patients is how often the system at issue is not documented on the medical record. Exactly. And the biggest outlier happens to be one of your favorites. It's the neurologic examination. So on head injury, headache, and cervical spine, there's no neurologic exam. So what you want to do is you want to teach, do a full examination of the relevant organ system. And we've looked at 20,000 headache patients, and we looked at 20,000 head injury patients, and 15,000. And there will be 
10% of the charts won't have a neurologic examination. And I think in part it's what you're talking about. They're so busy checking off that review of systems that that last box down at the bottom, which is the neurologic exam, somehow miraculously is not addressed. Jerry and I are doing a paper this afternoon looking at the quality of physical exams done on patients who are being cleared for psychiatric disorders. 6% of the charts did not have any vital signs, and about a third of them had no neurologic examination in this cluster that they looked at. It's exactly the same thing. So take that issue and say, all right, we're going to build a rule behind this chart because you're not getting out of here without a set of vital signs. Also, it's a psych patient, so make sure that there's a neurologic examination on the chart. How easy would that be? The 6% goes away. If you're in your session today and you say to everybody, hey, you know what, do vital signs and make sure there's a neuro examination, guess what? They'll do it for the next three months. It'll go away three months later. Somehow build that stuff in to the day-to-day and moment-to-moment. Well, this is the airline analogy that you can't land a 747 or take one off without going through the interlock between one side and one pilot and the other. They won't let you take the plane off the ground, and you can't land it until they've gone through the checklist and said, it's this, 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 and this. Now you're ready to land the plane. We have to strike the balance. There can't be too much of that. There can be just enough to make sure we're doing a high-quality job and that we are not missing those critical factors that make the big difference, like you just said, in the back. There's just a couple of things. With many of these things, there's just a couple of things that really make the difference. Somehow we've got to help everybody get there, but it's not going to happen just because there's a paper on it and we talk about it this afternoon. Dan, any thoughts about new trends in terms of what people are being sued for? Any things that you can alert us to that is not the myocardial infarction and the things that we hear over and over, which are still very legitimate but we've talked about before, but I think your perspective is one that you're going to see stuff that we may not be aware of. So anything that you ought to alert us to? Sure. We did a piece on an update, new trends in what we're seeing in MedMail, actually in complaints, because if it's MedMail, it's five years old, and it's, it's ancient history. We're seeing allegations of malpractice based upon not necessarily the missed MI, but the failure to follow the guidelines, the timing. You didn't get this done in 10, you didn't get that done in 30, and so they didn't get there in 90 lawsuits. I mentioned this earlier, we are seeing bleeding in the epidural space way more than we saw before. We're seeing abscesses in the epidural space. It used to be because it's an IV drug abuser. It used to be because there was some other high risk, but not anymore. When we do the Medical Directors Academy, every time I ask 100 medical directors, who's seen a perispinal abscess recently? So when we started this, 10, 15 people, now half the room raised their hands. This is a big deal. And they're all going home with musculoskeletal pain, so that's a big issue. Why are they bleeding around the spine? This may be a question for you. I don't know why they're bleeding around the spine. Maybe it's because everybody's on Coumadin and aspirin and Plavix. They're all, how many more people are on blood-thinning, platelet, screw-it-up medications? And so they're bleeding, and they're bleeding around the spine. And then sepsis is, stroke is huge. You know stroke is huge. You know the cases are on both sides, but they're clearly largely on the side of you didn't give the lytic. So that's huge, and that's already happening. And so that's on the radar screen. It's going to be big, big in three to five years, and people have got to get on board with that. One that is absolutely going to hit the radar screen, so people need to get on top of it now. They've got to look at sepsis. They've got to look at the data around sepsis. They've got to think about early goal-directed therapy because for the few people that you can save if you're given a lytic and stroke, if the data is right, what you can save in sepsis is incredible.
So people have got to get their arms around early goal-directed therapy, or I'm not saying that we're seeing the lawsuits today, but we're absolutely going to be seeing those lawsuits within a couple of years. If that person died in two years ago, you did not implement goal-directed therapy of some kind. Somebody's going to say, you know what, you've breached the standard of care. And i got one more thing on this, and I'd be very interested in your thoughts on this as well, both of you, is aren't you a little bit worried that everybody's using evidence-based and that the plaintiff's world is just going to say, ah, evidence-based, standard of care, there we go. And that plaintiff's experts are just going to say, hey, you know what, that's evidence-based. That means standard of care. I think we've created a monster here for ourselves, and we're going to have to talk our way out of what evidence-based means because it means whatever somebody with a commercial product wants it to mean. But I think Greg's going to say the standard of care is still established by expert testimony. But there is honestly this gap between what is known and what is practiced. And for some conditions, the gap is 10 or 12 years. It was 10 or 12 years for thrombolytic therapy to be broadly embraced by the medical community. So during that long for period... For cardiac of, disease. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> during that long period of time, there were lots and lots of patients who never got the benefit of that therapy because the medical community didn't embrace it. So there is a gap. I think it's clear, but I don't think that evidence-based medicine will establish the standard of care. I don't either. I just think that it's an abusive term that plaintiff's experts are going to go to town with. And every day there's more evidence one side than the other. A good example you gave was goal-directed therapy and shock. If you look at all the studies, all the things, pick it apart, take out the people who have a product, it looks like the new therapy is the old therapy. Get antibiotics to them quickly and give them enough water. And other than that, I don't think a lot has actually been proven to change the outcome. You know, honestly, that's true. That concept is now being disassembled into what are the key components? What do these components contribute to the outcome? Do you need that catheter in there? Is that a critical element of this process? So people are taking a more careful look at it. The initial data looked like it was almost too good to be true, and so they're restudying it. Which one of those components is it? Even ASAP, look at the website, they support it. And they say, although we don't know which one of the aspects of treatment really does make a difference. Well, I think you're now seeing a lot of papers that are picking things apart. You can't argue with the fact that we were giving too little fluid before. Absolutely. It was a distributive shock question. So you got to address that. You right. got, your system has to address that. <laughs> Just turn coming. up the water. And <laughs> if you're going to give, if they've got sepsis, Just pick an antibiotic and give it now, as opposed to in three hours, or fill that gap between admission of the patient. And something always goes on upstairs that we don't know anything about, that for four or five hours, nothing seems to get done like it does in the emergency department. But we have to pick on those issues which really are critical and try and separate out what really is evidence-based from eminence-based medicine. Because some major name suggests it, doesn't mean that it works. Although I could really see the dangers here because I mentioned in May 28th, the Heart Association said you can give thrombolytics up to four and a half hours now. So we talked about this other places on the four and a half hours. Absolutely. Um, Huge issue. Yeah, because that's basically going to increase the risk about not giving it by some multiple. The other thing is that like the American Heart Association came out and said all TIA should be admitted. Now, that's not really the standard of care in the community. 
or has not been. But you could see somebody saying, well, do you view the American Heart Association as a credible organization? Yes, I do. Well, Dr. Your guidelines say this patient should have been admitted to the hospital. Why did you not do that? No, you credible made and authoritative like are different. Before right? a jury. It's an interesting scientific discussion we're having, but you're sitting in a court of law and you're trying to defend somebody against a really strong argument by a well-recognized expert who said everyone recognizes early goal-directed therapy. Everyone wants this lactate level. None of this was done here. And you're going to have to fight that off. You have to fight off. This is evidence-based. And so I'm concerned. Perception is not reality. But so what? that's what happens in a court of law. I think it's a fight we're going to need to fight in the years to come. Well, in a court of law, perception is the only reality. And we just need to deal with that. Dan, it's been great having you here. Obviously, all of our listeners benefit from having one of the principal people in the field make comments like this. We hope they write in. And I would like to ask you if in the future we can call on you again to help straighten out what's happening in this strange medical legal world of ours. Right. Thanks for the invite, both of you. And happy to do it. Happy to come back. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it very much. Dan, thanks very much. We appreciate it, your words of wisdom. We're going to move on now with some of the other components of Risk Management Monthly. We've got a couple of papers that we wanted to talk about, really quickies. The first one is from the International Anesthesia Research Society Journal, which most of you get. You'll remember this issue, July 2009, from Dr. Banakar, Sanjay Banakar. Sanjay, Sanjay. That journal is my Bible, Rick. I wouldn't (laughs) miss it. This is 140 closed claims regarding uh, liability for venous and arterial catheters. Now, you would think that most of these are going to be arterial catheters, anesthesia journal, but the fact is that's not the case. 127, 140 for IV catheters. And what was the problem? Skin sloughs and necrosis was by far the majority, 35 of them. Inflammation and infection, swelling, nerve damage, 22 cases, fasciotomy scars. Fasciotomy scars, never very good for compartment syndromes and air embolism. You can get those from forgetting to put your finger over that thing when you're changing the catheters. But in any case, median settlement was about $48,000. But look at the range, $342, that's a settlement, to $12,525,000. must have been a fasciotomy scar, which affected libido or something like that to cause that kind of award. Rick, I want to know more about the $12 million award because right now, if I can trade a small fasciotomy scar for $12 million bucks, they got it. It's not a problem. Yeah, but if the fasciotomy scar involved the cutting off of your penis, you may not. <laughs> it's depending on where the ivory was placed. Depends whether you're talking to me or my wife, so go ahead. As you may kind of intuit, vasopressors were kind of bad, and calcioloride was kind of bad. And because this was an anesthesia survey, 15 of the cases involved thiopentol. Now, I do know people use thiopentol sometimes for cardioversions. I've seen that use. One of the things I think that is important to acknowledge is that these cases can occur in the emergency department setting. Now that we hold patients 24, 36, 48 hours before they're admitted to the hospital and they're admitted, God forbid, they're totally ignored, they might have IVs running that are infiltrating. So I don't think that this is not something that involves us. Well, I'll tell you, if you're running a lot of vasopressors in your emergency department and you haven't gotten them up to a unit, you've got other problems already. (laughs) I mean, this is not the ideal place to be doing that kind of monitoring and watching those kinds of patients. And if that's what you're doing, you're a high-risk emergency department to begin with. Yeah, but I think that that's a lot of emergency departments now, at least here in L.A., every other emergency department, that's the expectation. You have ICU patients getting vasopressors 
Everybody I talk to, all my friends around here, that's not uncommon. That's actually standard now. Waits to get to the ICU are 12 hours or more. So we are running these drips constantly. My comment stays. If you're doing that, you've just added complexity to your situation, Mel. You have to admit to that. Oh, of course. I agree. It's ridiculous. But this is an issue that is not going away. And so this, to me, is very important because I haven't seen too many of these extravasations, but now I realize that this is a big deal. People are getting litigated, litigationizing. They're doing something with this stuff. And so therefore, Greg, if that happens to me, do I just need to do a very good documentation on these patients? Yeah, what you have to have, Mel, is the way these cases are won and lost is to when it's recognized, were you rechecking the patient at intervals? And here's the big problem. The nurses have started a drug and nobody's seen the patient now for the next 30 or 40 minutes. That's the problem. Because once it's recognized, somebody has to intervene. It is not in and of itself malpractice to have a drug go out of the venous tract. It is malpractice to know about it and then not take appropriate actions in the proper time frame. And I'm sure that's what these cases are about. You know, one of the things I wanted to bring up is our hospital has an extravasation box, which is located strategically around each major department. And it has in that box a bunch of stuff, hyaluronidase, hydrocortisone, bicarb, thiosulfate, which is used for some of these cancer chemotherapy drugs, sodium chloride. And most of the nasty, nasty drugs are these cancer chemotherapy drugs. However, I think one of the interesting things about this box is that inside it are their instructions. And I never knew this, but I want to pass this on. Obviously, you stop the injection immediately. That's number one. But it says do not remove the needle. And the reason that you don't want to remove the needle is if you could withdraw blood through that needle, then you should leave that needle in place because that needle will serve as the route by which you give these antidotes and treatments. If you cannot draw blood, then they say, well, then you have to start another line, but to get into the area, that's the problem. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's number one, and I would not have known that, so I think it's a good piece of information. Yeah, actually, it's counterintuitive. I would have thought the first thing you do is pull that thing out immediately. Yes, that's why people subscribe to this wonderful service. By the Um, way, the other point you need to make on that, Rick, is don't carry a coffin by yourself. If you've done an injection or they're running cancer chemotherapy drugs, I don't know anything about those drugs at this point in time. I want somebody on the phone who can advise me about what medications I should be running. Because unless you have a different ER than I do, cancer chemotherapy drugs would be a rare event. Well, I think that this recommendation replies to all of these drugs that are infiltrated, not just chemotherapies. Like if you have an an infiltration with an alpha agent and you want to give some regitine, if you have a working IV, I think that you want to leave that in place. I would agree. But I don't know that, but it sounds reasonable. The uh, second paper we wanted to hit on briefly was medical student documentation in the medical record, a liability, published in the Mount Sinai Journal of Medicine, volume 76 in 2009. They basically talk about the Physicians at Teaching Hospital Initiative by Medicare, the Inspector General of Medicare, dramatically increases the level of scrutiny of the medical record, particularly student and resident notes, they say. And they also note that HICVA, guidelines maintain that the attending physician must personally document the majority of key aspects of the patient encounter in order to substantiate the service provided. Physicians may refer to student notes for elements like a review of systems, past family, and social history, but the student notes are not adequate, according to these guys, as standalone documentation for billing purposes, regardless of the overall content or quality of the documentation. 
Rick, two separate problems here. The first one is number one, it's a payment question. Did the attending or the person whose provider number is being used, did they provide adequate documentation? What they don't want you doing is relying too much on the medical student note or the resident note or anybody else's note. If you get in the money under Part B, Medicare, you need to have substantial documentation on that chart. Let me mention the second part of this is any note that is in that chart you are responsible for. So when a medical student, and I love medical students, they're tremendously enthusiastic. They're just wrong on a lot of findings. You remember when we were medical students, every third person had a splenomegaly. About every other person had papilledema. If the resident is writing these things in the chart, beware that you may someday be held responsible for that sort of thing. I think medical students ought to write book reports, something on separate pieces of paper. You can grade them. You can correct them. Do whatever you want. But I don't like them being a permanent part of the chart because there's always a note or something in there which will hang you. Yeah, they fail to recognize, most medical students, particularly early in their training, that this is a legal document and they don't perceive it. They don't understand that's what it is. And so sometimes they'll say things like, we had one of these, circus tent fat lady as describing her habitus. It's like, if there's anything goes wrong with this case, we're going to lose $1 trillion for saying silly things like that. So keep them away. We had a case where the medical student had said, and the fool outside doctor didn't recognize the appendicitis. Can you imagine how happy everybody was about that in the chart? They have no concept of the implications of what's written down on those pieces of paper. And to some extent, that's our fault. The medical students aren't supposed to know this. We're supposed to tell them that at the beginning of the rotation. Don't you even think about doing that. And we all came up. We wrote in the charts. We had all kinds of funny little things in there. Bottom line is it ain't funny anymore. A couple more points that this author made is he refers to another author. He says students should not document a medical record. He says, this is a quote, the safest, least complicated method to ensure compliance with HICPA guidelines is not to include student notes and patient charts. He advises that students document in a separate teaching file, as you suggested, Greg. And there are two other references that cited supporting this position. He also points out that some institutions have banned student documentation in the chart to avoid use of inappropriate abbreviations because the Joint Commission will have a fit over that. A cow, right. Exactly. And others have cited concerns regarding paper performance measured documentation and even issues regarding documentation of hospital-acquired complications, which Medicare will not pay for if they find out some problem and they are concerned about the quality of the documentation that may occur in trainee doctors. Other reasons cited for limiting or banning charting by students include medical legal liability due to inaccuracy, inconsistency, or discrepant documentation. Now, you're the attending. You're supposed to be the more reliable observer. But if this person puts down something that is counter to what you're putting down, it throws a little monkey in the gears. On the other side of this equation, they say, well, how are you supposed to teach students? They even point out that electronic medical records do not have any place for students to write down notes. They want the real McCoy. There's no provision for that. So how do they get to learn? They can learn like they've always learned. I have no problem with them writing things down. And you as the senior resident or the attending reading their writings, it's whether it becomes an official part of the chart. We can teach just fine. I think that's a bogus argument, Rick. Okay. Uh, I can read this stuff just fine. The points are made. 
All right, let's go to a couple of letters, Mel. Yeah, I've got a couple of letters here, and then I think Greg has a few letters. And the first letter we have is from the Looch. Now, you guys don't know the Looch, but the Looch trained at USC a number of years ago. And he's got this letter. He's asking who is responsible for advising patients about incidental findings on imaging studies. He refers to a typical sort of bad case where the process went bad, and four months later, there was a bunch of finger pointing. So who is responsible for advising these patients? So we do something and we find a nodule on a chest x-ray. Is that our job to follow that person? up or is it the radiologist's job? Well, first of all, it's almost never the radiologist's job to speak to the patient. If we're doing a chest film for trauma and we do good trauma and what we see is no major trauma problem, but somewhere on that official reading it says half centimeter nodule suggest follow-up at interval, that needs to go somewhere. And all the radiologists know this They have to have a doc, a family doc, a referring doc. In our place, they'll send them back to the emergency department, and then we have to contact their doctor or the patient to follow up. But I'll tell you this, the radiologist rarely takes responsibility for anything other than the reading. Does it compare to the original reading, which the emergency doctor did? And if there's a discrepancy, it has to be sent out somewhere. Well, one of the issues that was addressed here is what's the most effective and safest way to deal with these kinds of things? And one of my views of this is your relationship is with that patient. You ordered an X-ray or CT scan for that patient. You are acting as the agent of that patient in the ordering of that test. This test has an abnormality. I think that, and I think some people would not like to do this. They think it's going to make the patient all nervous and jerky and all upset. But I think that the obligation is for you to tell the patient There is an incidental finding on your CAT scan that we're not quite sure what it means, but it absolutely needs to be followed up. Because I'm very concerned about methods of documenting in the chart, I saw it, but nobody at the other end gets it. Or you fax the report to the doctor's office, but how do you know that the fax went through? You call the secretary to the doctor's office, but she never wrote it down. Unless you talk to the doctor one-on-one, you talking to that doctor, you cannot be assured of that doctor getting the ball and following up with it. So I think that the safety net here is to also tell the patient. And I think it's honestly a fair thing to do. I think it's a responsible thing to do. I don't think it's reasonable for your family doctor to call you up and say, you know, the CAT scan that they did at the hospital showed some weird things that we need to follow up. And then they'll say, well, why didn't the ER doctor ever tell me that? Well, frequently the ER doctor is not there who saw the patient is not there when the study comes back. The final readings are done, and in the next morning, they all appear on the desk. I think the point you're making, Rick, is the reason you get sued for these things is not who does it, whether it's the family doc or the emergency doc. The problem is no one does it. And then woman's chest x-ray shows a small nodule, and in a year, it shows a tumor the size of a grapefruit. Nobody can be more motivated than the patient uh, to get this taken care of. Yeah, and I think that the other thing here is obviously whenever a discrepancy report comes back to the emergency department, the doc dates it and times it, says who he contacted, and maybe he contacted both the attending physician and the patient, and that's attached to the chart. Because the one thing we can't have is a lack of documentation. There's no way in hell in four years when the lawsuit's being tried, you can remember what you did with those pieces of paper. 
This is such a big issue where we are at our county hospitals here in LA that my wife is a nurse practitioner and her job is actually to spend all day following up all of these positives or the readings that were initially, there's no subarachnoid hemorrhage there and the next day, oop, there is. So these positives that are gross and silly and the ones that are more subtle, her job is to follow that up. And it's a simple process. If you're in a busy place and you're seeing a lot of these, it's really a burden to ask the docs that are on that shift who are trying to see three or four an hour to try and do this properly. If you can get a well-trained nurse or nurse practitioner to do this for you and document it well, I think it is the best way to do it. Yes, I would agree that it doesn't have to be the doctor, but I do like the idea of somebody telling the patient. And yes, they're going to be a little upset and say, yes, they're going to say, doctor, is it cancer? Well, you're going to have to be able to backpedal that a little bit. But ultimately, I do think the safest thing, the safest thing is to tell the patient, in addition to telling some other physician in a non-controvertible way that this absolutely occurred. And write it down. Yeah. Okay, next letter. We've got one here from Jim Yen. Mel, that's a resident of yours, isn't it? Yeah, Jim is one of our chief residents. He's an avid listener of Risk Management Monthly. I can't believe a resident would be smart enough to listen to this. No, no. He's a smart guy. He realizes that he graduates in six months, and this is going to be a problem. (laughs) That's exactly right. It says, he's still confused about our recommendations of whether or not to include specific differential diagnoses in the medical decision-making part of the chart. He's heard our little rap on this, and he writes, for example, should I write this down? Should I put suspicious for the following things? How should this be done? And I would have to say, Jim, the first thing I would say is you cannot write down every potential disease you're working up. However, if there's one or two that stick out, let's say it's a 16-year-old boy with right lower quadrant pain, It's perfectly fine in the medical decision-making part of the chart. Talk about how you are thinking about appendicitis as a possibility and how you're going to plan the follow-up of that patient. I think all of that is perfectly fine. But you can never list every disease that has an elevated white count. And I think it would be wrong to try and start doing that on every case. Well, he goes on and has some other questions there. So he says, look, you've got the person with the right lower quadrant pain and you say in the chart, this looks like appendicitis and I don't think it's anything else bad. That kind of statement is reasonable, right? You don't have to list off, I don't think it's a AAA and I don't think it's an NMI and I don't think it's this and I don't think it's that. But just a more sort of general medical decision-making note, everything to me suggests this is appendicitis and you don't really have to go too much more further than that, right? Right. I mean, obviously, if you look in Zachary Cope's book at the number of disease entities in the right lower quadrant, whether it's 40 or 50 or 60, I can't quite remember. But clearly, you're not going to go through each one of those. But you do have to show some reasonable decision making that says, we're going to see him back in four hours. I've called surgery to take a look at his belly. We're going to do this and this. The story has to make sense. But this is the emergency department. You're not going to work up everybody for every disease. As soon as we start to do that, we've lost the function of emergency medicine. Well, there are a couple of flies in the ointment, though. Some people believe that medical decision-making and Medicare charts mandates that you put a differential diagnosis down. And so a lot of these checkoff charts list about 20 diagnoses that you can put down, check, 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 kind of thing, which is basically ridiculous. And he mentions as well 
that some of his faculty, not you, of course, Mel, of course some not. of the faculty say that the way you defend medical decision-making is to list a lot of these complicated diagnoses in the process. And I think that that really is not really what was intended. Medical decision-making stands for itself. If you order a CAT scan and this blood test and that blood test and that urine test, it's clear that there's a lot of things that are being considered in this but without having to give, it could be let's, all better. Let's get back to the real world here. For those who are not in training programs where you're the single doc working in an emergency department, if you think you have the time to be writing two-page medical decision-making forms, that's just wrong. And I don't think anybody requires Medicare, Medicaid, anybody requires that you're listing a comprehensive differential. The truth of the matter is there is no such thing as a differential diagnosis. It's the right diagnosis and everything else. But you and I go from something called a working hypothesis, three or four things that come to the top of the chart that we're working on, but God forbid that we ever have to write down, here's 28 things and why it's in or why it's out. That would be a huge waste of time, and I've never seen a case actually decided on that. No, that's got nothing to do with the cases. It's got to do with, in these cases, it's about Medicare mandated decision-making elements. And you'll see this, you take a look at T-charts or any similar kinds of charts that has, here's check off the ones that you're considering. I don't obviously necessarily agree with that, but it's not about medical legal in this case. I think it's largely more about Medicare defending your medical decision-making process. But let's move on. There's another one here from Charles Shepard. We all know Charles Shepard on this program. Charles is a listener of EMAM Rap. Risk Management Monthly is one of our favorite guys. He's always got good questions. And this one is about our opinions regarding health courts, which would be analogous to the tax courts in which judges with special expertise in conjunction with medical experts hired by the courts would deal with cases of alleged malpractice. Now, I'm not sure, but this sounds like the New Zealand system. I think Charles is asking here, do we think that's a good idea? I think it's a bloody brilliant idea, but that's me. Yep. Well, you understand that everybody else in the world runs a different system than we do. We have a battle of experts. Nobody in New Zealand would do that, and nobody in England does that anymore. They get an expert from the National Health Service who looks at the question. It's not a battle of experts. We've reduced this to the craziest system possible, where we've decided that 12 people picked from the jury rolls who know nothing about medicine are going to decide whether it's done right or wrong. If you can find something more ridiculous than that, just let me know. But I think under the current administration and what's happening with the health care reform, nobody is talking about reform of the medical legal thing. And it's just not going to happen in the current administration. Well, they're barely talking about health care reform. The most they're talking about nothing, Rick, except a few dollars here and there. This is not a discussion. People. Yeah, this but isn't a case, discussion about health care. Yeah. Chuck Shepard, I think, is referring to this analogy between tax courts in the United States where they have judges that are particularly familiar with the tax laws, whereby these courts then hire their own consultants and experts to advise the judge in the settling of these cases. And so the analogy would be terrific if we would do it. Not likely to happen, however, Chuck, in our humble opinion. But isn't this similar arbitration kind of thing occurring right now at Kaiser? As my understanding in Kaiser in California is that you basically, I don't know if you completely waive your right to litigation, but if something goes wrong, then Kaiser has a judge and they have an arbitration board and then they decide if you should be paid or not. Now, people who criticize that say then that who's paying for these judges is Kaiser. And if you're a judge and you want to keep 
doing work for Kaiser, then aren't you going to be biased in favor of Kaiser? Is that true at Kaiser? Does anybody know? Well, I know Kaiser went into that. I'm not sure. You cannot sign away your rights to sue. They can say, well, this is the first step you would take. But even Kaiser subscribers still maintain their right to sue under the laws of the state of California. So it's not a 100% system. And nobody should think that Kaiser can, with a stroke of a pen, take away your right to sue, because that's not correct. Well, this is interesting, too, because I know that at USC, at a county hospital, we also have this kind of arbitration thing first. It's they're self-insured or they're not insured, whoever we are. Think about it. So uh, there's this arbitration first, and then there's a little committee, and if they think that money should change hands, then it changes hands. But what the doctors don't like about that system is that the hospital's in trying to protect themselves might settle when there's really not malpractice at all, but they just sort of want to get it done. They've done the numbers. But the doctors are saying, look, we're worried that the hospitals or the system is going to continue to settle very quickly and I'm going to get named and my name goes to the California Medical Board, even though if this had been litigated, I would have won and it doesn't seem fair. Well, I think they ought to do this. I've had doctors tell me this a million times. Well, we've got to take this. I've got to have my day in court. If I can settle that case for a reasonable amount of money, then the doc ought to sign off on that. And if he wants to take it to court, I'll give him that much money to play with. But at a certain point in time, if they litigate that case and they lose big time, is he willing to pay that out of his pocket? It's not a simple question. And you didn't buy insurance to protect your honor. You bought it to protect your assets. This is not correct that a guy can just willy-nilly put everybody's money and everybody's rates at risk. There needs to be some force here of other docs who look at that and say, can we settle this for a reasonable amount of money? I'm very afraid of every doc getting to have, quote-unquote, control over settlement, because I don't think that's right. Greg, you have a couple more letters, yes? I do. I have one from a gentleman who wants his name withheld, but he says, I've been an EP attending for 18 years, and I've very much enjoyed the lectures on risk management. I think he's referring to the three of his given. In one of your lectures, you describe what you would document in an extremely busy and chaotic emergency room. I recently found myself in an extraordinary situation in which patients were out of the door of the ED, down the block. It wasn't just the halls were full. There were no monitors, no equipment, no nothing. I felt I had tremendous limitations to the practice of emergency medicine. I would appreciate it how you would handle this from a documentation standpoint. Well, Doc, thanks for writing, and I'll repeat what we said once before, and that is if you write on the chart somewhere, we're in crisis mode, we're in department overload mode, Because I promise you when that lawsuit comes in two or three or four years, you won't remember that night. We do tend to remember those. I think the question is, is how descriptive do we get in those charts with regards to trying to make the case? There's also other ways where those cases will be supported when the doctor says we were really, really busy. There's the logbook. There's the left without being seen. There's the length of stay. There's all kinds of data that could support the fact that this ER was out of control. And the, the thing is, was there any recourse for you? Was there a backup doctor? Could you call the departmental director? What about the nursing and vice president? What actions were taken to try to address the fact that this was going on? Rick, I think that we're suppressing the fact that 
right now in Southern California, I'm sure, almost every night you have emergency departments that are in this situation. So I want a simple phrase or something you can put on that chart that at least clicks your mind over to go back and look at all these things. I don't want you to spend 15 minutes talking about the bodies down the hallway, but at least you ought to be able to trigger something that says we were not in our usual and customary mode. Of course, I don't know, Mel, at your place, that is your usual customary mode, isn't it? Exactly. I guess also what people should understand, and I think it's intrinsically obvious, that just writing on the chuck it was a ridiculously busy night is not really a defense in itself. I think you've got to go further and say, and I did the other things. We called in the medical director. We called in the backup staff. Despite following the plan that has been set out for these overwhelming nights, we still couldn't give what would be a traditional sort of standard of care with less patients. I don't think that we're going to get around the fact that at this moment in time in America, as there's going to be less and less resources in certain areas, people are going to show up at emergency departments. And if you think for one minute, it's going to be a pleasant experience or there's not going to be waits. I think you're wrong. This is going to happen. And we've got some cases coming up here we're going to talk about in a minute where that was exactly the issue. Well, before we move on, there is this idea that you have some obligation to develop a surge plan in your hospital and to shrug your shoulders and say, well, this is the way it always is. As an example, we have a physician on call at our hospital for the emergency department. We are one of the few emergency departments that have single doctors that I know has a backup doctor. And we pay that doctor serious money to be on call. Do they like being on call? Absolutely not. But do they like working in a department where they know that they have the safety net underneath them? Should they have either by volume or intensity of the cases the opportunity to call somebody in who is sober and is waiting to come in? Absolutely. And I don't know why other departments are not obligated to do such. Now, you might not like to hear that. But it's a reasonable kind of thing, particularly in a one-doctor department where the volume of patients varies between 50 and 100 in a day. Yeah. I think the amount of surge capacity in America at this moment in time is extremely small. And whenever we have something even as relatively innocuous as the swine flu, H1N1, hit us, there were places which were basically brought to their knees if a true pandemic of something considerably more toxic than H1N1 was, we would see the soft underbelly of this system. Moving on, you have one about transfers for thrombolytic therapy or something like that, don't you? I got that one. This is Valerie Norton who writes to us and says, actually, she writes to Mel and says, hi, Mel, my favorite CME guru. God, Mel, you've got fans everywhere. (laughs) Well, you know, Valerie and I were in the same class at UCLA, so I'm a big fan of hers as well. Well, her question is this. I can't stand it. (laughs) Yeah, I know it. Uh, She's working at Mercy, and she has been directed to send her stroke patients to Scripps Health at Scripps La Jolla, five miles away, to receive intra-arterial TPA when they have a stroke. And now they're talking about not a three, but a three- to eight-hour window if they meet certain criteria by CT angiogram. I believe, and the neuroradiology people from La Jolla came to their meeting to talk about it, but they didn't bring any literature or any proof that this actually works. What she's concerned about is she searched the EMA database, couldn't find anything. What she's saying is, do we have anything about the safety, efficacy, 
of doing intraarterial TPA? Has anyone proved anything? And aren't these patients at greater risk than if they get straight just venous TPA? Rick, you've got a paper on this, don't you? What is the question that relates to medical legal liability? Is this doctor concerned about if I send this patient to a stroke center that is doing stuff that is experimental, do I bear any liability? And I think the answer to that is no. I Uh, think that we'll argue. Well, I think it's the other way around. I think what Val is, and I might be wrong, but and she'll tell us if I'm wrong. Does she have to offer that service? So if somebody comes in with a stroke and you have the opportunity to just put them in the unit or to give them TPA in a usual venous manner or to send them to the hospital down the street and do something fancy like intraarterial TPA, are you at risk if you don't send them for intraarterial TPA because the local neurologists at your place say this is by far the best way to do it? My point of view on that is pretty straightforward. I think that you could say to the patient, listen, there is a stroke center five miles away that is under the umbrella of this hospital's organization. They have all kinds of capabilities there. Would you like to go to the stroke center for care? We can get you down there relatively quickly. I think that that is the end of the conversation, the end of the obligation. And if these people are a stroke center, they can go down there. That doesn't mean that they're going to be getting experimental therapy. They may get straight old TPA. They may get nothing. So to assume that they're going to get some kind of nasty surgical procedure that is unproven is kind of a stretch. Well, I think it's also, though, your obligation in the emergency department not to oversell something. What you can say is at our hospital, they've requested that we move you to the stroke center. They will discuss with you the treatment options. What you don't want to get into is being the cheerleader for this therapy, this which actually, quite frankly, right now is a non-therapy. I'm actually not aware that there's a paper that says that the intraarterial technique, whether it's putting TPA there or using an extractor, has actually changed the outcomes at all. But I think she's asking a question here, which is, do I have to even offer this to them unless there's a literature base that defends it? And I think that may be a political question as opposed to a medical question. Well, I do have a paper in the abstracts that looked at this mechanical thrombectomy business where you put this rotor-rooter jobber in there and move that clot out of there. Yeah, um, I used to take hairballs out that way out of sink traps and stuff You know, like yeah, that. I see that TV commercial, that, you know, that guy with, that puts that little brush down your drain there and pulls out that hair clot and really makes yeah. you want to lose your lunch when you see yeah, that thing. Uh, yeah, that's not well, Billy Mays, is it? No, I don't think so. No, it it's actually was his partner. This paper was from Stroke in April of 2008. It looked at 164 people who had endovascular thrombectomy. And the, here's the bottom line. 90-day mortality, 34%. It is huge mortality. One in three of them died by three months. Now, were these patients the worst of the worst? Yeah, I don't know. I don't how they determined who was a candidate for this was a, another matter, but 34% mortality, nasty stuff. Moving on, any more letters? Well, I've got one more here, which is a good question, and that's from Antonio Brandt, who says, we've been asked to take care and sign death certificates. He says, what's your opinion of ED physicians signing these death certificates? Is there any risk associated with practice? What do you recommend writing as the cause of death when it's not clear? By the way, Antonio, I used to write down shorter breath, but they would always send those back to me to put something else on. He says there seems to be a wide range of opinion on this subject, and some experts recommend that we never sign 
death certificates that didn't die in front of us, essentially. And on the other hand, we don't want to hold up the process of the grieving family. What's your opinion, gentlemen? I don't sign them. Unless it's clear that the person's head was decapitated and they brought into parts, then you can sign it, basically. But I think that other cases, there are rules for what makes a coroner's case, and that person who's decapitated would more likely than not be a coroner's case. So I think there are rules that protect you. To put cardiovascular arrest or something to that effect for a patient, I'm not interested. I don't know why they died, and I'm going to follow the rules, at least in California, of who is a coroner's case and who is not a coroner's case. Yeah, I don't think it's just a matter of coroner's cases, because we obviously pronounce a lot of people who are not going to be autopsied. Right. Signing a death certificate is another. You're exactly right. And most of these people have attending physicians. If they've been caring with them with their terminal cancer for the last 15 years, let them sign the certificate. I think basically what he's saying is because you're the emergency doctor sitting there, what they want you to do is to facilitate the system and sort of, quote, unquote, be a good guy. Well, before I would be a, quote, unquote, good guy, I would look at the state laws about signing The second thing is, if the hospital wants me to put a name on a death certificate, I think they're asking you to do something which is probably not right medically. If you don't know the case... What is the risk, though? So you're both sort of saying, don't do it, don't do it. I used to do this all the time in Australia. I haven't done yeah, it in years here. Country, Mel. Come yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> different standards here. Because it was just easy for the family. You know, grandma had cancer and she died. And uh, yeah, sure, I know why she died. I didn't have a problem with it. But I haven't done it here. It just doesn't come up. But why should I be concerned? What is the risk? What's the medical legal risk of me filling out this form that's saying grandma, who was cachectic and 400 years old, who came with a stroke and died 10 minutes later, and I write on the death certificate, this is why she died. She died of a stroke and apnea or whatever. What's my risk for doing that? What if you find out that there are certain children who are all heir to the $20 million estate, and maybe one of them did the old lady in? And now another one comes back and sues you for not pursuing this more vigorously. I mean, we can always make up a story here, Mel. I think the real question is, if you're going to provide this service for the community, let somebody sign on and relieve you of all medical responsibility and pay you for signing the death certificate. I don't know why you'd do it. Why don't we have the radiologist do it? Why don't we have the pathologist do it? Why don't we have anesthesia do it? Why would you do it? Well, I can see it's just not an issue in a big urban center where there are lots of doctors around, but I can see for people in Alaska and rural settings, you may be the only doctor around for 100,000 miles. So you are the doc. There may be state-to-state variations in this, but basically you either have a primary care doctor or you have a coroner. You are never in the loop as one of the people who are the authorized signers, as far as I know, certainly... But again, I think I'm talking primarily about California. I don't know whether that's the case, but I wouldn't be signing those things. All right, Rick, thanks. I'm going to do Wine of the Month. And as everybody who attacked me at the Scientific (laughs) Assembly, they all want something different. These are tough times in America. The dollar has dropped against the euro. So we are going to talk about U.S. wines again. But we're going not from California, but to Washington State. And I want to talk about one which is just sort of knocked people's socks off for very little money. Well, not very little money, but it's called Adams Beach, 2006. It's called Red Wine Reckoning, and it's a mixture of reds. This is from the Columbia Valley. This is a $34 bottle of wine, which is rated as a 93 
that's the kind of wines that they're paying $150 for from France. Unbelievable. One other we're going to hit on is one from a vineyard in Washington State, very small. It's called Airfield Estates. The 2007 Merlot carries a 91 rating in the Wine Advocate, in Parker's Wine Advocate. This is the Yakima Valley, 22 bucks. Now, you can look at a lot of great wines in California, rated 91, that are costing 60 80 and 100 bucks a bottle. 22 bucks for this bottle. It's really good. I, of course, am forced to try some of these things, and the airfield comes with my highest recommendation. Do you get to deduct your purchases of wine as a part of the service that you're providing to us? You know, Rick, I've never done that. And now that you mention it, I might try and get <laughs> I'd, that. I'd pass it by your accountant, Slippery Louie, there. Maybe Slippery Louie out. might think a lot about that. But next month, we'll do a couple of other great Washington wines. You know, a number of people have asked me and have been quite passionate about it. Can we please do beer of the month? The first risk management tape we ever did we did paps blue ribbon and a number of people have said look they don't drink wine they want to talk about beer so i'm going to tell you about fosters i just want all the americans <laughs> that listen to this i want you to understand fosters yeah i know he started last fosters is to australia as budweiser is to america just know that you're right fosters it's the bulk beer from australia i drink redback oh yeah i think that is south australian yes Named after the spider, right? 